You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today is Barry Scott. Barry is currently Engineering Manager at The Lookout Way, a digital care management platform. He has an impressive career that spans across building mobile applications, smart TV apps, point of sale systems, and PDF software at Drawboard. Welcome to the Product Edge, Barry. Hi, Georgia. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you here. Um, Having worked with many technology and product teams as a developer, leader, and consultant, Barry is here to share his insights into how product managers can align with technology teams. Do you mind just taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners, Barry? Yeah, of course. Uh, So I'm originally from Scotland. Uh, I've been in Australia for uh, about 12 years, over the last 20 years, but that was in uh, two groups of six years. So at the at the start of the decade of the century, I suppose, and then now um, with a little bit of time in Ireland in between. Uh, so I get around a bit. Um, my career basically splits in half. I've been working in mobile for about the last uh, 12 years. Um, part of that, I ran my own games company for a while. That was in Ireland. And I've worked on a whole bunch of other apps. And before that, the first half of my career, uh, I was very corporate, very enterprisey. Started off in investment banking and trading, and then I moved into enterprise systems uh, for a while, working for some. Uh, I was one of those highly paid consultants in a suit that would come in and uh, set up logistics systems and things like that for various companies, um, which was fantastic because it's uh, you see lots of different industries and lots of different ways of working, and how people do things, um, but ultimately it's. It's pretty boring. So I'm glad I got into mobile stuff after that. Awesome. I'm very keen to uh, dig a little bit deeper into that today. So um, something that I found out recently that I've um, some statistics I read through Harvard Business School by Professor Clayton Christensen is that there's 30,000 new products introduced every year, um, 95% of which fail, which is incredibly high. Uh, One of the reasons that we've noticed that products fail and what we see happening again and again is a lack of product and tech teams aligning, yet there aren't any common methodologies that help product and technology teams communicate in a more structured way. So Barry, in your opinion, how can product managers promote clarity and better communication between teams? Uh, Yeah, that's an interesting start. I haven't heard that before. Feels about right to me because I'd say I probably ignore about 95% of products that I see. I, I wouldn't buy them. Um, I think we talk a lot about product market fit in product management, and that's essentially aligning what you want to sell with what people want to buy, basically. Uh, 
So aligning the team who are building it to that vision is essentially the same thing. Um, if you don't know what you're going to sell, you can't possibly align the people who are going to build the product uh, to sell it. So step one has to be figuring out uh, what do you sell. Um, but even more importantly than that, it's uh, figuring out what's the core of the thing that you're trying to sell. What is your what is your core product? And even some established companies struggle with that. Never mind startups who are trying to find their way in the market. Uh, because you don't want to be building things that are non-core. That, that's kind of a waste of time. Uh, and I think you said the word clarity there, which is really what it's all about. If you have clarity of of the vision and the mission of the company, what you're going to sell, uh, essentially, what the product is, it shouldn't be that hard to explain that vision to everyone in the team, to developers, to, to, to management, to marketing people. Everyone should have a shared vision uh, that's very uh, clear and obvious and easy to communicate. Uh, what a mentor I had years ago, uh, and me and my wife had a retail business uh, about 20 years ago, uh, and we had a, a mentor in that business. And he said to me, if you can't explain your whole business on one sheet of A4 paper, you haven't thought about it enough. It's too complicated. Think about it more, You know, come back to that, revise that vision and get it down. Um, and that's actually really good advice. You, you should be able to explain things uh, very concisely. Uh, and then once you have that clarity, you can build on that uh, for the rest of your product uh, pipeline and your, your mission. Um, so for me, that's that's really that's really step one. I don't think there's particular uh, tools or or methods that really help with that because if if you if you have a really clear vision. You shouldn't really need uh, any sort of special way of communicating that. It should be pretty obvious. You know, if it's a couple of paragraphs, a couple of diagrams, that should that should be enough to get everyone on the same page. Should product managers get their technology, marketing, and sales teams involved right at the beginning of an you know ideation of a feature or a new product, or is it better to have them involved when the company's got that planned and trying to make that product a reality? Uh, yes, I think everyone should be involved all the way through. Um, I think it's really important that everyone's involved at all stages from the from the conception to the build phase, but people from different disciplines don't need to be involved to the same level uh, or to the same amount of time all the way through the, the process. Um, you can pull in engineers to advise on things up front. Is this thing technically feasible? Uh, is it possible at all to do this? Um, but obviously, then the engineers get more involved as you go into the build phase. Um, that makes sense. So if I talk about how I I like to, the things I like to see in a pitch. So in my current company, we have this uh, theory of doing calm, sustainable work, uh, which means we work in cycles that are six to eight weeks. And a feature team comes together for a cycle. And that feature team will implement something that has been described in a pitch. And that pitch upfront, I like to have a very strong uh, why. You know, why are we doing this? What are we gonna build? Which comes from the having a strong vision in the first place um, and then breaking that down into individual features. Um, and also like to have 
a marketing plan for it and like a metrics plan to say, how are we going to measure this? Like, how do we know that this thing has been successful? Um, because without knowing your target, you can't really know exactly where you're aiming for and you can kind of drift a little bit. Uh, so if you have all that stuff up front, uh, that will take various different teams because you're going to need the marketing people involved to, to figure out how you're going to sell the thing. You're going to need the uh, the sales team involved potentially to say how do we how do we track this? You know, what's what are the metrics that we're looking for to see if this worked? So everyone will be involved up front a little bit to do that. Um, what I didn't mention there was the the how of doing it, but you know, how do you build it? Um, I think that should be left to the team, the, the implementation team to come up with the, uh, to give them the autonomy to build it in a way that makes sense to them. But if they're given a very good pitch that has a very clear what we're trying to build, why we're trying to build it, here's how we're going to measure it, here's how we're going to sell it, it should be fairly obvious how to build it. Um, and you shouldn't need all that much more input from certainly from like sales and marketing further down the line, maybe a bit more input from product down the line to, to guide uh, how, you know, what, what it's going to look like at the end. But yeah, I like to have everyone working in, uh, in tandem all the way through the whole process. Awesome. And so if the technology team, product team, maybe even management as well, have different opinions about the vision of the product, how would you go about resolving that? Uh, yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll happen, no matter what. No matter how good your pitches are, no matter how good a vision you have, uh, there will always be differences of opinion on how to do things. Um, even if you think you've explained something with absolute clarity, someone has heard it in a slightly different way. That's just humans. Um, so I kind of like to preempt those discussions by having a, a a few things in place that make conflict resolution a process rather than a, an argument, if, if you like. So we spoke about uh, having a clear vision and a clear mission, uh, and that's the kind of bedrock foundation of all of this stuff. You've, you've got to have that, otherwise you, everything you build on top is a bit shaky. But also in the mix, uh, you need the values of the company, which should be proper the real values of the company, not you know fake values that go on a poster, but people don't actually do it. Um, the actual lived values of the company and the team. And teams could have slightly different values from the company. They should complement each other, but they might be a bit more specific for a team uh, and a bit more sort of vague for a company. But you've got the values. Uh, I like to do a thing called trade-off sliders. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. Um, which is an exercise where you take generally the the build team and the product team, uh, you know, design maybe some other people and management, and sort of say, what do we really care about for this product? Uh, or, or it could be at a feature level, could be at a product level, and you take five or six categories of things that you could care about and you essentially rank them in order. So things like, uh, do we value speed? Do we value UX design, um, usability? 
technical brilliance, uh, like uptime of the system. You know, like for sure, bank that's pretty important. Uh, so you take all these things and you put them in the mix and you say which one is more important than the other. And obviously, this is, takes a bit of discussion, and eventually, you reach a situation where you say, okay, we care more about this than this. Uh, if you're a cash-strapped startup, money is going to be super important. Shipping fast is going to be super important. So you probably prioritize speed of execution over great UX, for example. Uh, if you're an established company with plenty of money, you can maybe spend more time on UX and not care so much about money. So you'll have things in different uh, priority uh, for your trade-offs. And then you keep those somewhere safe and you say that's the way, they could be like gaping principles of how we work. And then list out your boundaries. So boundaries could be things like time. You've got a deadline coming up um, that you must hit. It could be something regulatory, something financial, uh, people boundaries. Um, you know, if you've got a team full of iOS developers, you can't suddenly just start using some new JavaScript framework because you've got to retrain everyone. Uh, so those are your boundaries that you work within as your company. And if you get some sort of conflict that comes up and you've got a really strong vision and you've got strong values and you know what your trade-offs are, you know what you prioritize from your trade-offs and you know what your boundaries are, generally that makes the decision for you. Because when you're choosing this path or this path, one of those paths will more closely align within all of those parameters than the other one. And usually then any conflict becomes quite obvious how to solve it. Uh, and the other advantage of that is it, it isn't personal anymore. It's not one person's opinion that we should go this way versus this way. It's my opinion we should go this way. And it's backed up because these are our values and these are how we work and these are things we prioritize versus the other person who generally will say, ah, oh, yeah, you're right. That does kind of break this constraint. Uh, and it depersonalizes the situation, makes it more of a process rather than a, an argument as such. Nice. And that's one of the things that I love about product management is that you can pretty much pro process everything <laughs> or have a process for everything. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you've worked with plenty of distributed teams throughout your career. What challenges does that bring and, and how would you overcome them? We um, currently, our team is, I, I've always worked distributed on this team. Um, and in my previous job, we were partially distributed as well, but both in sort of the same way in that we had a, a head office where some people worked and then some distributed people around the country. Uh, obviously with COVID, everyone has ended up working from home all of a sudden. But we transitioned to that really easily because the way we worked was already basically set up in that way uh, that would work well for, for everyone working from home. So we have a, one of our values in the company is, I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but it's something like calm, sustainable work. Uh, so we, we do everything uh, asynchronously. Uh, we don't really have many meetings. I, have, uh, I had one meeting today and recording this podcast, and that's the only two Zoom meetings I'm on this week, um, which is pretty typical, actually, like maybe one or two a week. Um, we write everything down 
in sort of posts and then we comment on those posts, which means everyone can digest what was said in their own time, think about how they want to react to it, and then write down a sort of considered opinion about it rather than being in a meeting, you know, under pressure thinking, oh, I must say something. Now I must react to this thing that's being said. Um, and oftentimes I must react and look smart about what I'm saying, which, you know, sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. So by taking that whole meeting idea out of it and making everything asynchronous, it just calms everyone down. Uh, so that worked really well when we moved to everyone being at home because no one, no one had to worry about aligning schedules. Uh, now we work across uh, all the time zones from Perth to New Zealand. Uh, so that makes it slightly tricky to align people. It's not terrible though. It's not like, you know, we don't have people in Europe, uh, for example, which obviously makes things uh, uh, more difficult again. Uh, but we never have an expectation that someone will be online at any point in time. We let people's sort of home life drive their work schedule, not the other way around, uh, or as much as possible. Obviously, there's certain, you know, Sometimes you just have to work around the meeting or whatever, but for the most part, that doesn't really happen. Uh, so I think that really helps. Just give people space to do their own thing, and generally they'll get they'll get things done. They'll they'll work really well. Um, the social aspect, I think, is the the bigger problem for distributed teams. You just you, you can't replicate in-person social interactions the same way as you can in the offices. It's just not possible. So we try and do a little bit of that where we uh, we do sort of virtual water cooler chats and we do we play games online against each other and have a, have a laugh about it and stuff like that. Uh, but it's still not the same. I, I think I'm a big believer in getting people together in person, even a couple, few times a year, uh, you know, fly everyone to, to one location. Uh, or at least it's, you know, a few people here and there meeting up with each other, uh, even if it's not everyone at the same time. Obviously, with COVID, that's not a thing that's happening right now. Uh, but hopefully soon we'll get back to to doing that. Um, and hopefully everyone's, you know, saved their budgets, their travel budgets. That they haven't spent them on other things so we can all fly. You know, my company's mostly in Brisbane, so I, I fly up to Brisbane and uh, see everyone up there every now and again. Hopefully... You know, fingers crossed we can do that in the next couple of months. Uh, but yeah, the social aspect, I think, is the is the hardest part. Um, but in terms of doing the work, slow down and ultimately you'll end up producing the same work that you did before and you'll realise that you didn't need all those meetings that, that, were, that were happening. I know at the start of um, everyone going into lockdown, there was a lot of talk around meetings and everyone's days being taken up too much by meetings. So I think it's awesome that having that asynchronous communication as opposed to discussing everything in a meeting, it sounds like it would work really well and something I'd like to try and implement at Middleton Executive perhaps, although we don't have too many meetings. <laughs> yeah, and it also helps with people who have you know slightly different schedules as well. So people who have to do school runs or, uh, you know, frequently have to go to doctors or things like that um if that if, if if there's no expectation that that's a problem then people feel really comfortable with that uh i 
when the kids were at school and I was picking them up, I would just go and pick them up. I wouldn't even necessarily mention that to people at work because they didn't care. They didn't, they didn't need to know. You know, I didn't need to, to pop a message in saying I'm clocking out for half an hour. Uh, we just don't really have that concept uh, because no one's expecting you to be online. Uh, so that works really well. It gives you that confidence to just do, to do what you need in your life and get on with it. And if you give that sort of autonomy to people, generally 99% of them will repay you by uh, being conscientious about doing work and, and doing good work in return. Going back to aligning tech and product teams, how technical do you think product managers need to be? I don't necessarily think product managers need to be technical. I think there's a there's a responsibility on technical people to be able to explain technical concepts in a way that anyone can understand, even a product manager <laughs> can understand. Or, or, but anyone in the business, you should be able to explain things uh, concisely and simply enough that people can understand to the CEO, to the salespeople, to product people, uh, without them having to have huge technical knowledge to, to understand the concept. Uh, I I would actually, I, th- I think you get better results with product people who know the customer and the, and the business area um, better than if they're, if they know the technical aspects of implementation and doing the job, you know, from the, like a coding side. Uh, like a job board, for example, uh, job board was making software for the construction industry and two of the product managers and actually the CEO had worked in construction and civil engineering. Uh, and that was incredibly valuable because they just come at things from an angle that you wouldn't necessarily think of sometimes. And in my current job uh, with in healthcare, we have a whole bunch of people who have worked. Uh, one of our product managers was a pharmacist. Um, one of the people was a radiologist previously. And we have a bunch of clinical people currently in the company. And they just have such a different outlook on things uh, that make it just super valuable. And I think that's more valuable than having the technical expertise. But what they but it kind of goes both ways and it comes back to clarity again that both both sides of the discussion need to be able to explain their point of view clearly to the other one which I think is a, just a good skill generally for everyone to have. Yeah, I love that you touched on that the technical team should be able to explain things to non-technical people because actually when we're interviewing people at Middleton Executive, we have a couple of questions exactly like that. How would you explain APIs to a non-technical person? It's actually quite interesting how many people get a bit stumped <laughs> and mm. don't know how to respond. It takes them a while to think about it. Um, so yeah, definitely, I exactly. like that approach. But I suppose sometimes it's easier said than done, <laughs> especially yeah. depending on who you're talking to and um, how much they understand technology. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's also sometimes making the case for a technical thing because oftentimes it can be something uh, that the business doesn't really prioritize. Like, like we, we need to upgrade a database to a new version and we're going to have to take the, app, take the app offline for for a day to do that. Try and make that case to someone and they'll just say, 
But if you can't explain it clearly, then you say, well, it doesn't seem like a very valuable thing to do. It seems painful. It seems dangerous. It's going to annoy the customers. Why would we do that? Uh, so you have to have good reasons for that. Same for investing money into things like security. Uh, oftentimes, these can be overlooked because they don't seem to have a tangible benefit to the to the business. Um, building an API, why would anyone want that? Uh, you know, unless you've got a customer actually asking for it, there isn't really a business case uh, for it that that would probably come from the business. But if the technical team want to build it, they should be able to build a a solid case for it and make it kind of obvious why we need to do that. And that's a, it's a hard skill and it's a thing that technical people sometimes are not that good at. Uh, and in fact, science people in general are not that good. I'm not, not saying developers are science people as such, but um, I think we're seeing that in, uh, in, in COVID just now around vaccines and things like that, that scientists are not often amazingly good at communicating with people because the nuances of of it can get lost. Uh, you know, headline writers want a really simple, concise answer to things, and sometimes that just doesn't exist. Well, it's also like what you said earlier, people are people and we all hear what we want to hear as opposed mm. to, you know, the truth and the facts. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that, I know Agile as well has been evolving and everyone's got different opinions about Agile, the way they do Agile. Um, it's an interesting topic in itself, which we could do a whole podcast session about. But what do you think is the future of Agile and how is that going to affect product and technology teams aligning? It's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. It's Agile has, it's, it's a strange thing. It's become its own industry, which is weird. I, uh, a few years ago, I went to Agile Australia uh, and I, I just walked into the convention center and I was like, this is, this is weird. How can this be a, it's just a way of getting people to do, to work well as a team. How can, how can this be a whole industry around it of consultants and things? So I like to have things spread out further. Like I said before, we work in like six to eight week cycles. Uh, we give people a week or two's downtime between cycles to sort of decompress and, uh, you know, address little bugs or whatever. Uh, and I think that's, and we don't have stand-ups. Uh, we do it we asynchronously write uh, sort of uh, up, updates on how the project is progressing whenever we feel that it's necessary. Uh, it's not like every Friday or every two days. It's just whenever something significant has happened, we'll keep people up to date. So I think that kind of asynchronous aspect is going to become more of a thing. Uh, and, it, and, and it helps with the distributed nature of teams now. It helps with uh, sort of calming people down. So I, so I think we'll probably evolve more in that direction, um, which means people giving up control to the implementation teams. So you got to trust people to do the job. you got to give them the autonomy to do the job, but then you got to trust them to, to follow through and actually do the job. Uh, and on the flip side of that for the team, building the, the, the feature or the product, they have to put their hand up if they need help or if something's going off, uh, something's going off track, something's gone wrong. They need to be able to put their hand up and raise that with uh, the wider world to say, this is actually not going the way we thought it would. Uh, so that trust has to kind of go both ways. Uh, so I think it's, for me, Agile is about 
clarity that I keep going back to, autonomy for the people building the, the, the features, and communication, talking to each other, having those loops of, uh, of, of, of communication that keep everyone inf uh, informed of what's going on. And if you stick to those sort of basic principles, which are essentially the basic principles of, of Agile, Anyway, you know, talk to each other, chop things into as small as chunks as possible, uh, and evolve based on feedback. That's really what I think agile is about. It's like smally, you know, smally agile uh, rather than some big process. Um, it's just a it's just a smaller process of examine what you're doing and iterate on it. And if that if the results of that are you've got to change direction, fine, change direction. I think that that pretty much works for me. The one thing I retain from Scrum always is uh, retrospectives. I actually think retros are really useful um, and also useful in a social sense for distributed teams, just to get people together to, because sometimes people just need to vent. They just need to say, this didn't work so well and, and I want to vent about it for, for a couple of minutes. Um, ideally things get fixed because of that. Um, but I think retros are really, a really useful part of, of Agile that, that we never really, I don't know, I can't remember if they, if they existed before um, Agile um, in the old sort of waterfall days. I don't, don't really think so. I don't think we ever really got together and as a group and kind of talked about how are things going and what could we improve. Um, and I think that's a really important aspect of it. Yeah, I think it's important to, I guess with anything, take bits and pieces and make it work for you it doesn't have to be something you know one size fits all sort of thing exactly um, yeah. and that's where I find most of our clients at Middleton Executive you know when they ask us you know agile experience we have to dig deep into okay but what do you mean by agile <laughs> mm. um, and really dig into that because you know the, the, it's, it's different for everybody and every company has their own processes that they've included into the process so I think it's a interesting topic that we could continue talking about um, but just so that our listeners could get to know you a little bit more, Barry, I would love to know what one of your greatest achievements has been to date. I think it was probably uh, building up my games company because that was a complete fluke, really. Um, I was just making games part-time in my spare time and one of them got uh, quite popular and it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, and became a company and I got VC investment and we ended up working with Hollywood Studios and I got to travel to LA and all this sort of stuff. And it was just a completely wild ride that was just bizarre. And I just, <laughs> I kept pinching myself. I remember walking back to a hotel in, in Germany. Uh, my, the, the VC company that invested into my company were in Cologne in Germany and I, they agreed to give me money. And I just got back into my hotel room and just went, this is the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. Uh, and it was, and it was just great. I, I hired some fantastic people who are still friends and, and we did some work that was really interesting and we're proud of. Uh, ultimately the company games is really hard to make money in. So we never, we never made as much money as we hoped and the company eventually got sort of um, swallowed up by a larger company. Um, but it was, it was fantastic. It was a great, I think four years doing that. Uh, so that was probably the that was probably the best thing making a game for the Transformers movie uh, in 2011 
I think, or 13, no, 11. <laughs> uh, that was that was amazing. That was good fun. That does sound like a lot of fun. And, and what's been one of your biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome? I think when I look back now on my career, uh, I grew up as a, a disabled person from a very poor background. Uh, and looking back, I now realize that was actually doing life on hard mode. And it was it was amazing that I actually managed to to get out of that situation because not many people from the, the East End of Glasgow do manage to sort of get away from that. Uh, even to go to university is is fairly unusual, more more normal now, which is great, but uh, 30 years ago was very unusual. Um, and to do that and then move move away and travel to different countries and stuff like that, uh, at the time, just seemed like just, just getting on with life. You know, I, I, I didn't think anything of it. It was just just uh, taking, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. Um, but as I look back now, I realised that was actually quite quite tough uh, to start. You know, a tough start to life. So I'm very glad that my kids will not grow up with the same sort of hurdles in place. They'll have different hurdles, I'm sure, but uh, it won't quite be won't quite be the same. Yep, you're only always at it. Your problems are only big as you make them. Yeah. <laughs> all, all relative. Look, Barry, it's been so nice talking to you today. I really appreciate you coming on board and sharing your insights and, and experiences with us. How can the Product Edge listeners stay connected with you? Uh, you can pretty much find me at Baz Scott, B-A-Z-S-C-O-T-T, on most things, on Twitter, and I uh, think that's my username on LinkedIn. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and that's my website, bazscott.com. So that has links to all the other places on there. We'll include it all in the show notes so people don't have any trouble finding you. Barry, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Cool. Thanks for that, Georgia. That was great. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.